According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 21. I want to uh, follow up. We've got to wrap up some details we had last week. Um, and then I want to take a look at uh, pursuing righteousness and loyalty. That's Sadiq and the Chesed some of the most fundamental Hebrew vocabulary that we deal with in terms of Old Testament soteriology and, and uh, the experiential righteousness that we have as we're walking with the Lord. Uh, but I think, let's see, no, and we've got a couple other details to, to tie together to finish verse 20. So we'll wrap up verse 20 and 21 and uh, we'll call that good for today. Before we begin though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the time we have together in your word. We thank you and praise you for brothers and sisters that make the word of God a priority. And uh, we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to set aside distractions, to hedge us about and protect us, and uh, just to bless our time in your word today. We thank you, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week as we were looking at verse 20, there are precious treasures and, uh, and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. And so the A part and the B part of this verse, speaking of the contrast between accumulation and devouring, the idea that there's an abundance, that there's an accumulation of precious treasure and oil. And so we ought to be generous in our uh, accumulation and our sharing and the abundance of uh, the enjoyment of what God supplies us in grace and not just simply the selfish perspective or the selfish attitude that devours and consumes so that there's nothing left. And that's uh, the, the A part and the B part here of verse 20. As we uh, outlined it for you under point 16, our dwelling places should feature accumulated precious treasure and oil as we avoid the snare of ruinous consumption. And this is what the B part is speaking of, the ruinous consumption, whereby you're just devouring and consuming and, uh, and there's nothing left. And so uh, not only do we have it here in Proverbs 21, 20, but we've had uh, previous exposure to these concepts in chapter 10 and chapter 15 and, uh, and the issues there. Psalm 112 verses 1 through 9 that we took the time to work our way through uh, last week also. The principle spans both the physical and the spiritual dimensions of our life. As we talk about this verse and related passages, we might be talking about food one moment, might be talking about money the next moment, might be talking about uh, spiritual realities the moment after that, because all of them are blended together when we're talking about the, the provision of God and His grace, His abundance, His provision, and, uh, and what we enjoy. The term dwelling place, stressing the transient nature of this life, the transient nature, the fact it's not a home, it's a, it's a stopover, it's a it's uh, a place of our temporary dwelling, similar to what we have in 2 Corinthians 5. If this tent, which is our uh, dwelling place, is torn down. Anyway, Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Or Hebrews 11, as Abraham was looking for a city with foundations, whose uh, architect and builder is God. 
The presence of such abundance is blessed by the Lord and the readiness to share in fellowship from such abundance. So you can have an abundance, you can accumulate an abundance, but if you're doing so with human viewpoint, you may be just as miserable as the person who's lacking. You may be just as miserable as the person who's destitute. So the perspective related to destitution or abundance centers on whether or not we're walking with the Lord and we have divine viewpoint related to the blessings of what He has supplied. But if we are ready to share, like Abraham at the tent, welcoming in the Lord and welcoming in the angels and sharing over the, uh, the abundance there. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, to be ready to share. Ephesians chapter 4, working with our own hands, ready to share. This is what it really means to lay up treasure in heaven. You have to be willing to share here on earth. And I think that the, uh, the passage in 1 Timothy 6 makes that clear. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. To fix their hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to be good. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So that's the attitude. The generous attitude, the readiness to share attitude. And in that activity... If you are generous and ready to share, then it says in verse 19 that uh, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So it's that attitude, it's that perspective related to our money, our food, our our daily walk with the Lord, everything, that uh, our attention is set on the things above, not the things that are on earth. And uh, this is the key here to uh, laying up the treasures in heaven. Failure to accumulate as God designed us to results in an ill-preparedness for ministry. Results in an ill-preparedness for ministry. And this, uh, I think these are well-known passages, but we were running out of time and kind of really rushing through at the end of the hour last week. Uh, but, you know, look to the ant, O sluggard, in Proverbs 6.16. I'm sorry, Proverbs 6.6-11. 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. And so there's a pattern, and we can learn that in the animal kingdom. We can, you know, watch a bunch of bugs and see what they're doing, okay? And we see that they're busy, that they're working, that they're marching and they're carrying stuff. Uh, It says, having no chief officer or ruler, well, they do, but not that we know, and certainly not in Solomon's day in the ancient world, but uh, from, from all appearance sakes, we look at them and they all look the same, right? Just a bunch of ants running around. Having no chief, officer, or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? Do you know what time it is? Do you know what time of year it is? Are you working appropriately to, uh, to do these things, to accumulate as God designed us to? And uh, anyway, there's uh, the recognition here that, of course, uh, this earth is created seasonally and we have seasons for planting and seasons for harvest and seasons when nothing's growing in the dead of winter and, and other applications there. It's the same thing in, uh, in, our, in our financial life and other things. Um, we have a, a stage of life when we're young and healthy and we want to be working hard and accumulating because there's a, a stage of life that comes when we're old and not healthy <laughs> and, and we, uh, you know, we're happy to have the savings that we've accumulated prior to reaching that stage. I think also in the spiritual realm we have passages like the foolish virgins in Matthew chapter uh, 25. Jesus was teaching this parable. 
the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Well, that's stupid. What are you doing taking lamps but no oil? I mean, if you weren't such a fool, you'd understand that's how you run the lamp. You need that. You need the fuel for the lamp. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. And uh, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom come out to meet him. I like to quote this verse in, in wedding services that I officiate and in weddings that I perform because, you know, the uh, behold the bridegroom, biblically speaking, it's the bridegroom that's the, that's the celebrity of the universe. It's Jesus Christ, not the bride. We turn it around backwards in, in weddings these days where we, she's the one that's all beautiful and decked out in white and all that. But biblically speaking, if the, if the bride is in garments spotless and white, you know why that is? It's because she was redeemed by Jesus Christ. The bridegroom is the one that that uh, saved her and, and washes her in that application. So Christ being the, the bridegroom, the church being the bride, hopefully we understand these metaphors for what they're about. But failure to accumulate as God designs, you know, um, we need to be walking with wisdom and we need to be achieving that which He's called us for at each, uh, at each step of the way. And uh, trying to get caught up after the fact and, and trying to take some remedial courses. And, and don't get me wrong, if uh, whatever's in the past is in the past and start making better choices now, but it may be that poor choices previously is making you know a tougher road for you in the in the here and now. So um, that's not a, a reason to give up or squander what you're doing here and now, but just make today the day that you're serving the Lord and, and move forward from here. All right. Well, now we get to the final things as we were running out of time last week. Ruinous consumption is self-destructive behavior. Ruinous destruction is self-destructive behavior. The second part of, of our verse here, the, uh, the foolish man swallows it up. The foolish man swallows it up. In Proverbs 20, uh, I'm sorry, 21, 20. The foolish man swallows it up. In other words, he's not thinking long term, he's not thinking down the road, he's not uh, concerned about the abundance, he's not concerned about sharing. He certainly doesn't want to share anything with anybody and uh, he probably scarfs it down so fast no one else gets a chance to, <laughs> to grab a slice anyway. You know, there's, there's uh, 12 slices of bacon there and instead of dividing it among everyone at the table he scarfs it all down himself and there you have it. Anyway, it's called ruinous cons- uh, consumption and it is self-destructive behavior. It's a failure to seek first God's righteousness as we're told to do in Matthew 6. It's a failure to place earthly wealth into the guiding perspective of eternal wealth. I think we're familiar with these. Matthew 6 verses 19 through 21. Matthew 6 verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. So we have a contrast there. Now we've got to be careful, and this is a, a useful exercise for us because when we encounter passages in different parts of Scripture that at first seem to, seem to uh, disagree, then we stop and ask ourselves, all right, God's not a liar, both of these are true, how do we reconcile both passages? Because in Proverbs 21 it says, there is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. 
So that sounds like you're storing up treasure on earth. If, if it's there, if you're accumulating it, if you're wise and following God's principles, then you're laying up treasure on earth. But Matthew 6 says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. So how do I apply both of them? How are they both true at the same time? Well, they're both true as we understand that the statement here in Matthew is not an absolute in isolation of everything else because even in the immediate context it's showing you a contrast between earth and heaven. So when it says do not store up for yourself treasures on earth but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, we realize that the, the emphasis Jesus is making here in Matthew is showing you that contrast between earth and heaven. And so we're not wrong if we uh, maybe have a, a helping word like do not store up only or do not only store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not be entirely earthly focused. Okay, So it's not a ban on, on earthly accumulation. Okay, It's just saying don't make that the only place you store up treasure. Because heaven is the more important place to be storing up treasure. And when we understand that for the context, and when we're saying, okay, so you're not wrong to work. You're not wrong to accumulate. You're not wrong to, for, for savings and investments and those kind of things there. So we have the, the immediate context of verse 19 with verse 20 and 21, and then we have the long-term context with passages like Proverbs 21, 20, where we do accumulate treasures in the, uh, the house of the wise. So, um, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you'll notice as you get down further in Matthew 6 that this contrast is expanded even more as it's a failure to seek first God's righteousness. And I think if we get past this uh, plucking out your eye thing and we see, yeah, don't worry about your life as to what you will eat or drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And uh, look to the birds. Here we go. Do not worry then, saying, what then shall we eat, or with what, will sh- what shall we drink, with what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So in other words, we're walking by faith, we're trusting in God's faithful provision. And we're not consumed with, with, uh, with how we're going to get these things and, and, uh, and, and devour them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so temporal life is like the uh, icing on the cake. It's like our spiritual life is first, and we're adjusted to divine viewpoint. We're walking with the Lord. We're walking by faith. Then as we work and as He provides and as we earn and as we save and as we accumulate and as temporal life works itself out, we're properly adjusted. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so uh, by keeping our, our eyes on the Lord and having the divine viewpoint perspective for everything, for our food, for our income, for money, for possessions, for clothing, um, and all these things, uh, we're, we're appropriately adjusted because we're looking to the kingdom of God first. And I point out, seek ye first is not seek ye only, okay? And it doesn't mean that that's the only thing you're concerned about, is that you're entirely uh, you're just reading the Bible 24 hours a day and you never get a job and you never go to work and you just, well, you're going to starve to death. Okay? Because you're not oriented to the Bible properly. It's seek ye first. And then if, if you're lined up in your spiritual matters, then seek ye second, the secondary things. And th- seek ye third, the, the tertiary things. Okay? 
There I go using fancy words again like tertiary, all right? But seek ye first, seek ye second, seek ye third. And, and you know, if, it, if these things are, are uh, properly uh, prioritized, there's nothing wrong with seeking fourth, fifth, and sixth as long as you've done the, uh, the first things first. Failure to place earthly wealth into the guiding perspective of eternal wealth. Because if you're just wrapped up in earthly things, if you're just uh, saturated with human viewpoint and you've been carnal so long you don't remember the last time you were in fellowship, then you're ready to write your own personal book of Ecclesiastes and uh, your thinking is going to reflect Solomon's thinking. And uh, one of my favorite Bible verses, do you know Ecclesiastes 10.19? You should memorize this and then quote it to people. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment and wine makes life merry and money is the answer to everything. (laughs) All right? Now how's that for, I mean that's in the Bible, right? So shouldn't we be living this out? Well, understand yes it's in the Bible but know where it is in the Bible and understand the context here in Ecclesiastes and the attitude that Solomon had walking in darkness. And what happens, even if you have wisdom, what good is that wisdom for you when you're carnal? And how quickly does it become perverted? How quickly does it become jaded? We see this in the case of Satan and his corrupted wisdom, and we see this in the case of Solomon and his corrupted wisdom. Other political advice that follows in that same context. In your, furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping room, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. And it's interesting, things that you thought were private, and they get spread around quicker than anything, because you know, there's demons, there's spirits, there's fallen angels, there's other um, people that you thought you could trust, like those in your bedchamber, and they go tell them the tell them the story too. Anyway, one of these days, we'll hit Ecclesiastes, and at least in through the Bible, if nothing else. But maybe the day will come that we'll teach Ecclesiastes in a in a separate, independent study beyond. Uh, maybe we'll make that the follow up to Proverbs down the road. You know, 55 years from now, when we finally finish the Proverbs series. All right, well, let's go back to uh, Proverbs 21. Let's look at 21.21. Proverbs 21.21. There's so much here to this, and I think, um, thankfully, since we have a New Testament perspective, we can look back with hindsight, we can relate this in in different ways. I, I don't know, though, that it's limited to our hindsight perspective. I suspect that Old Testament believers could have used passages like this as well. That this is uh, really a blunt expression of Old Testament soteriology and um, you know, the, the uh, redeemed way of life as we have it. If you want to call it the Christian way of life before Christ, that's fine. But the redeemed way of life that we have. Old Testament soteriological and sanctification principles are rarely as blunt as we find it here in Proverbs 21.21. So he who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. In other words, if you come to the Lord, this is what you get. (laughs) Okay? Uh, But he who pursues righteousness and loyalty. And um, so let's approach this on a couple of different bases. Okay? We can view this positionally. We can view this experientially. We can view this uh, we're going to try to forget what we know in a New Testament perspective and just put ourselves in the Old Testament as uh, you know, a, a family of believers that are trying to raise our children and, and uh, get them grounded in the Word of God. But what does it mean to pursue righteousness and loyalty? All right, to pursue righteousness and loyalty. Is this legalism? Is this works? Is this human effort? Is this um, 
you know, a bunch of Jews trying to uh, uh, fulfill the law and earn or deserve something. No, not at all. We find the, the pursuit of righteousness um, we'll, we'll find, well first of all we find that righteousness and loyalty not only are they character traits that God Himself has but they're expectations for us in our Christian walk but they're also personal descriptions of Jesus Christ. The law came by Moses, grace and truth came were, were manifest in Jesus Christ. And these tandems of righteousness of, of in Hebrew it's tzedek or tzedakah and chesed for the, the mercy loving grace of God. These are descriptions of Jesus Christ. And so pursuing righteousness and loyalty means how is it that we can become righteous ourselves? Okay? That's why I say this is soteriological. And it would have been soteriological back then. If we can just try for this hour now to forget everything you know from the New Testament. Okay? And, and try to be an Old Testament saint. And, and how is it that, you know, that you're going to lead your child to eternal life? Because we don't have John 3.16, we don't have 16.31, we don't have uh, some of our favorite evangelism passages. So what do we use as an Old Testament believer if uh, with, with our children, with an unbeliever on the street, okay? And, uh, and they come to us and say, what must I do to be saved? Okay, well you can't quote Acts 16.31, but you can quote this. Pursuing righteousness and loyalty. You can quote other passages like Proverbs 8. You can quote other passages, okay? And so it's, it's kind of curious. I'm creating a file now. What I'm hoping to do is in the long term, if, after I've accumulated enough of these verses in my file, to be able to put a paper together and be able to have a, a comprehensive Old Testament soteriology using those scriptures and in the order that they were written, see? Because from the, you know, until they... Uh, were brought out of Egypt and brought through the wilderness and entered into the land. They didn't have any written scriptures. But once they get into the land, they've got now the writings of Moses. Okay? So they've got the Pentateuch. They've got Psalm 90. All right? Uh, probably have the book of Job going into the, going into the land. And then after the conquest, they get Joshua, they get Judges, they get Ruth pretty quickly. Okay? By the time you get to, to David in 1000 B.C., now you start to add Samuel, you start to add uh, the Psalms, you get to Solomon, you start to add the early Proverbs, but Proverbs 25 through 31 weren't added until the days of Hezekiah. So I think it's useful to not only chart the, 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 the canon, the Hebrew canon, but also the stages at which it was added and compiled. Anyway, this is going to be one of these passages that we start to realize, wait a minute, do we realize how soteriological this is? The pursuit of righteousness and loyalty. And uh, the recognition that when, when, um, when the Jews became legalistic, they totally went off, off the rails in this very question. Not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, Paul says. Well, if they'd have stuck to passages like this and, and related passages of Scripture, I think they would, have done, they would have done better. So pursuing righteousness and loyalty, this equals coming to Christ. And then, that's the salvation experience. Uh, that's the uh, coming to the Lord expression of pursuing sanctification, uh, uh, righteousness and loyalty, and then walking with Him afterwards. So we don't stop walking by faith, even though that's how we got saved, right? We're saved by grace through faith. We keep walking by grace through faith. So let's take a look at some of these other expressions as we have them and consider how fruitful they are in this regard. Proverbs 15, 9 
The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. He loves one who pursues righteousness. So we have the contrast, the contrast between unbelievers and believers. Unbelievers on the one hand is the wicked, walking in the way of the wicked. But then the believers on the other hand is the righteous, pursuing righteousness. And you might stop and ask yourself, or maybe your child does or the unbeliever does, um, well, how do I pursue righteousness? Is this something I can deserve for myself? No, because all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. As a, you know, the only way to be made righteous is to receive it as a gift, to be justified. Well, who can be pure in God's sight? You see, this goes all the way back to Job again. Some of the earliest scriptures that were canonized for the, the, the Hebrew canon. How can a man be pure? Born in, born in sin. Who can be righteous in the sight of God? And is this something we earn ourselves? No, this is something that's granted to us. So we're going we're gonna to come to the same conclusion we come to as New Testament believers. We're going to understand it's faith alone and Christ alone, but it's going to be based upon the revelation they had at the time. And so it's faith alone in Messiah alone. Faith alone in the coming promised seed of the woman alone. Uh, it just based upon the, the content of saving faith as it was revealed in the, the revealed canon at that point of time. So the way of the wicked is an abomination, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. Can't obtain it ourselves, but when we're walking with the Lord, he imputes it to our account. Isaiah uh, 33, verses 15 through 17. And let's see if there's a larger context here. Verse 13 says, you who are far away hear what I have done and you who are near acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with, consuming, uh, with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? So the fear of the Lord and recognizing that we walk with a holy God, that if we depart from his righteousness, we don't stand a chance. And, uh, and it is. And the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews tells us this in the New Testament as well. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Now, so how can we possibly survive living with a consuming fire? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity, he who reject, rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribes, he who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. All right, so we understand that here's a believer that's saved by grace through faith who wants to walk accordingly, who wants to walk in the integrity of his faith as unto the Lord. And so um, we see that it's a, it's a soteriological experience, but then it's a sanctification experience that follows. It's the position, it's the experience, as we would put it in New Testament terms. doesn't stop there either. It goes down through verse 16 and verse 17. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Notice the, the spiritual things come first and then food and water. The provision is made. But he will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock, trusting in God and his strength. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. The Old Testament made it very clear that if their spiritual life was not uh, 
was not properly aligned with divine viewpoint, if their spiritual life was not on track, that, uh, that they weren't getting into the millennial kingdom. This is why when the forerunner comes, he's preaching a message of repentance. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Jewish nation has to have their spiritual life in order uh, to welcome their king and to enter into the promised kingdom. Anyway, I stopped it with verse 17. I think our context even goes beyond this, but we can let that go for now. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? <laughs> you know, are you terrified? Are there details that you're, that you're just terrified of? Because they're a promised kingdom. It's not going to be easy to arrive. They've got to go through tribulation to get there. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Who counts the towers? Are you surrounded? Are there siege towers laid up against you? You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech, which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue, which no one understands. When Isaiah is given this, uh, he gives several messages related to the stammering tongues and the, the strange speech. And uh, those often they're warning passages, like we have it with the gift of tongues in the early church age, that Israel should wake up and say, oh, wait a minute, stammering speech, foreign languages, we're in trouble. There's judgment on the way. Anyway, neat things that they have there. Let me uh, get past Isaiah 53. Let's look at Isaiah 51. Almost the whole chapter here. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. That's, that's the tandem, pursuing righteousness and seeking the Lord. You're going to try to create your own righteousness, then you're not pursuing His. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, you're, you're saved prepared for good works, prepared beforehand that you shall walk in them. This is an Old Testament passage for soteriological and sanctification principles. So you who pursue righteousness is, you know, the, the believer that's saved by grace through faith. You must be born again. This is the, our Lord told uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. So they have the forefathers of their, of their race, the forefathers of their nation, Abraham and Sarah. When he was but one, I called him, then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And her wilderness he will make like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a melody. So they've got promises of marvelous things in front of them, but you'll notice right, right adjacent to those marvelous things in front of them is some pretty tough times. Before they can get to the garden, they've got a desert. Before they get to the paradise, they've got a wilderness. They've got judgment on the way before the Lord's going to shepherd them through it and bring them into the glory that is, uh, that is promised. Pay attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. So once He's got Israel on track. Once Israel is redeemed, once Israel is in their kingdom, they will finally start to fulfill what they should have been doing all along, being a light to the Gentiles, being a, 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 having their, their stewardship ministry to the Gentile nations of this earth. One chosen nation to minister to 70 divisions of humanity, of the Gentile nations of this earth. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. 
My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me. And for my arm they will wait expectantly. Notice the linking between righteousness and salvation. I think far too quickly um, we dismiss any Old Testament reference of salvation as simply applying to a military rescue or to a temporal life deliverance from some kind of, uh, of an army affliction or something like that. But no, it, it does talk about that, but it also speaks to the imputed righteousness and the, the, the position salvation that we have in Christ. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. And uh, it's, to me it's kind of interesting with the, the tandem between the, the millennial kingdom and then the, the destruction of the heavens and the earth. And Isaiah also speaks to that as well, the new heavens and new earth in chapter 65 and 66. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. In other words, you're saved by grace through faith. A people in whose heart is my law, the millennial promise to Israel. A people in whose heart is my law. This is what the new covenant was promised, that he would write his law upon their heart. Do not fear the reproach of man. Be, not, uh, be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever my salvation to all generations. And of course, how many are there? A thousand. That's right, a thousand generations for those who love God, those who are called. All right. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generation of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over. God has always been victorious in the angelic conflict and he's going to be victorious at Armageddon. There's nothing that's going to stop him from bringing uh, Israel into their millennial kingdom. The same God that brought them out of Egypt is the same God that's going to bring them into uh, Israel for the millennial kingdom. So the ransom of the Lord will return and come with, and by the way, that's not the Jericho harlot, that's, that's Satan, the, the dragon. Rahab is the, is the poetic name for, for Satan there. The ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So uh, these, these hymns that we sing, they're a bit theologically problematic because the, we're marching to Zion, we're marching to Zion. This is going to be Israel in, uh, as God brings them into their kingdom uh, through the, uh, the tribulation experience. All right, we're still in Psalm 50, Isaiah 51. Almost the whole chapter, I'm telling you. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? That you have forgotten Yahweh, your maker, the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of your oppressor, and he makes ready to destroy Anyway, let's get down through this. I think, yeah, there's a lot more. I'm going to let the rest of that go, I think, for the rest of Isaiah 51. Otherwise, I'll just get lost in this entire thing. Well, do I let myself? All right. 
Verse 21, Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. See, when he accomplishes his purpose in the tribulation, it's done. His purpose is to drive Israel to repentance. Until he brings them to that point, he can't come back at second advent. And also, I think, helps us to recognize what's God doing in the tribulation? What is the purpose for pouring out this cup of wrath? And you see that the church has nothing to do with it whatsoever. He's dealing with Israel, his, his covenant nation, and he's dealing with the Gentile nations for their, uh, their uh, abuse of the Jewish nation. The church is irrelevant for tribulational judgment or God's wrath in this regard. We are neither Jew nor Gentile. We are a heavenly people. We are separated from all of God's dealings here in the, uh, the earthly nations and the, uh, the program for the Jewish people. So it's a, but it's a drink that will never drink again. The tribulation's never repeated. It's a unique time in human history. And once it accomplishes its purpose, he will never need to execute tribulation judgment on, on Jacob again. So put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. And even have even made your back like the ground, like the street for those who walk over it. Isn't it curious? When the adversary's forces are on the ascendancy, they love to lorded over the ones they defeated. They love to march over the, the vanquished foe. And it's not enough to, to have victory. They want to have the, the, um, the abject submission of their conquered foes. And uh, it's, it's really no different than Islam when they conquer a land and, and submit their conquered peoples to the jizya tax. They must feel subdued. They must feel that, that, uh, that they are unworthy and inferior to the ones that have conquered them. Am I talking about Islamic Jihad or am I talking about uh, <laughs> other political things that are happening in the world today? Anyway, God's in charge. God's in charge. And he knows what he's doing. All right. Anyway, if, if, the, if the ending of chapter 51 was depressing, it gets better in 52 and 53, okay? <laughs> because our Savior is so faithful clothe yourself in strength and clothe yourself in beauty. All right, let's get to uh, Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. We have the, the charter of the millennial kingdom. We have the constitution, if you will, of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And uh, as Jesus reveals this in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's still early in his ministry. The kingdom is still at hand. The uh, potential for, for him to to bring Israel into the kingdom is still very present. They haven't reached the point yet where the nation has rejected him and they, uh, they turn the hinge and he starts to prepare his disciples for the cross. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, began to teach them, saying, blessed are, blessed are. Now, if this was in the Hebrew, it would be asherah, it would be uh, it would be like uh, uh, Psalm 119 or Psalm 1. It would be the happy are statements that we have. I prefer to translate happy instead of blessed to, uh, to keep uh, makarios distinct from eulagetos and to keep uh, in the Hebrew to keep asherah distinct from barak. There's different kinds of blessings and this is the, the happiness that we have. So happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
and uh, the aspects here. And I think uh, just like last week as we're, we're showing the blend between the, the earthly and the heavenly, the financial and the spiritual, we have these principles applied here as well. Anyway, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I tell you, Israel's going to mourn unlike anything ever when, as they go through their tribulation. But they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And uh, not by their own strength, not by their own victory, but by trusting in God and waiting for their Messiah to come and deliver them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So again, we have the idiom, and this goes back to what started this hour. This goes back to talking about the pursuit of righteousness, hungering and thirsting after it, uh, you know, panting after uh, the, the Word of God as the deer pants for the water brook, and other, other metaphors and expressions that we use. But those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you're positive at God consciousness, if you're positive at gospel hearing, if, uh, if you want to know the truth and you're asking for the truth, uh, I mean, when you're, when, you're, when you're ready to get to that point to say, what must I do to be saved? God's going to have the right person there at the right time to, to tell you. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And it, you're not going to get it through human effort. You're not going to earn it yourself. God will provide and you will be satisfied. And so this, uh, this metaphor of pursuing righteousness, I think the... Um, Maybe the biggest hang-up for folks that reject this being soteriological is, is the verb pursue, the idea that, well, we don't pursue, we don't, we don't come. Yes, we do. Whosoever will may come. And we do come to Christ. And uh, to everyone who believes, He gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And so we can relax about the exact metaphors as they're used because we know there's a variety of them used in a variety of, of contexts and applications. Um, and if, if that's really the biggest hang-up about pursuing righteousness being a, 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 a come-to-eternal-life moment to accept a free gift, um, I think there's, we can overcome that pretty easily. Okay? I think uh, because here, here the metaphor is hungering and thirsting. Hungering and thirsting. Anyway, there's additional Beatitudes there. This was uh, a couple weeks ago. We were looking at these in the Grace Notes class, talking about uh, all of these Beatitudes in the perspective of this. All right. Um, two more passages then. 1 Timothy 6.11. Here's a pursuit of righteousness. Now this one, Timothy's already saved. So that's why we say what we do to get saved, we keep on doing in, in our Christian walk. So getting saved is by grace through faith. The Christian walk is by grace through faith. Pursuing righteousness is uh, coming to Christ for eternal life. Pursuing righteousness is walking with Christ after we have eternal life. And so, um, yeah, this is the same context. We were here earlier talking about laying up treasure in heaven and the wrong attitude for money, the right attitude for money. But he says, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue. And look at number one item on the list is righteousness. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So getting saved is the pursuit of righteousness, but then living out the, the Christian walk is also the pursuit of righteousness. Along with godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 
I think far too many believers, they have eternal life, but they never take hold of it. They're, they're, they're saved, they're regenerate, they're going to go to heaven when they die, but they're not engaged in that heavenly life here and now, and they should be. We, we should be taking hold of that here and now. And that's what he said, in, that's what Paul said in Philippians when he talked about forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. He talked about that I might lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So appropriating the, uh, it, it is an objective reality, but we need to appropriate it daily so that it's a, it's a subjective realization. In other words, the positional truth feeds the experiential truth. Anyway, good, uh, good applications there. Pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Pursuing it. Not by human effort, not by works, not laying a claim that says, oh, look how great I am or what I've done by my own human effort. The pursuit is, is it's still God doing the work. It's still the grace of God that allows the, the, uh, the pursuit to take place. And I think this, uh, this is a useful perspective to maintain here as well. And then finally, 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue. Just like with 1 Timothy, there's a flee before you have the pursue. And what's number one on the list again? Righteousness. Every single time. Pursuing righteousness. In Proverbs, it's pursuing righteousness and loyalty. But here it's pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You're not doing this by yourself. No one runs the Christian way of life isolated from the body of Christ. That is your fellow brothers and sisters. That in particular, those that are in your, your flock, your church family that God has assigned you to. And so you have a, a, uh, the blessing and the encouragement to be able to, to run the race with those fellow brothers and sisters. And so they contribute towards the positive items here. Pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Okay, so the um, the provision that we have there is, I, I think this is, uh, and, and you tell me maybe uh, after class or different times, if these passages are helpful to find these Old Testament passages that do speak of of a pre-Christian, in other words, Israel stewardship, their soteriology, their uh, we can't call it ecclesiology, but it's their walk. Okay, it's their positional sanctification and their experiential sanctification. And to find these passages whereby we can kind of transpose our, our New Testament theological terms back upon the, the verses they had available to them back then. I think it's a useful, uh, it's a useful endeavor. So, uh, yeah. I don't know why um, there's uh, dispute or there's, there, there seems to be a, a hesitancy to take uh, the pursuing righteousness in any positional sense when we have it both in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. Nothing wrong with calling it a pursuit. All right. And then it goes on, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels and uh, the conflict that arises that the shepherd has to deal with there. All right. Back to Proverbs 21. We learn how to conquer all right, so he who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. You know, you think about the, um, 
the things that the world pursues and the things that the, the, uh, the unbeliever and the carnal believer that they find value in, um, honor especially, the uh, accolades or the, the uh, fame, the uh, praise. And, and you know, the, the frantic search for happiness that every unbeliever is chasing around trying to get contentment, trying to get... Um, and, and, and God provides things that are so much better. He provides the reality, not the empty pursuit, and not with the strings attached that Satan has. So you want to find life, righteousness, and honor? Great. How about on God's terms? And how about uh, a life, righteousness, and honor that never ends? Because it abounds for all eternity. All you need is Jesus Christ. So get saved and, and uh, the provision there gets made. All right. Let me tease you with where we'll be next week in verses 22 and 23. Because I don't think I have these slides prepped yet. Nope, we're out of slides. All right, so here's uh, what we'll deal with next week. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. Well, I don't like confrontation. Can I pass on that? (laughs) You know, that sounds awfully militant. I, I don't, you know, good for him. (laughs) <laughs> you know, now wait a minute. The wise man is supposed to be you. Are you pursuing wisdom? Okay. This is not a, a, a no thanks, I'd rather not participate uh, opportunity. This is a description of what is expected of you as you walk in wisdom, as you're walking with the Lord. And uh, we should be taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. We should be tearing down those speculations. We should have the, the weapons of our warfare that are divinely powerful. And, and even more so because in the church age we got the armament that they never even dreamed about in the Old Testament. And yet we, where do we find this passage? In the Old Testament. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. And so, so many of the passages, I think, were quick to just, you know, leave in an earthly context. No, Israel was likewise keeping their eyes fixed on the invisible. Israel was likewise uh, walking with the Lord in their, in their uh, experience. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names, who acts with insolent pride. Ooh, that's, you want to avoid that. Anyway, well, we've got some neat things coming up, and then hopefully we'll get to, um, yep, get down to the end and be ready for chapter 22. I still want to cover 22, 23, 24 this year, and I don't know if uh, I seem to have slowed down in these recent months. The horse is uh, prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs for the Lord. You know, yes, you take your your uh, earthly preparations. You do your, your secular uh, responsibilities and your due diligence and whatnot. Um, the battle is the Lord's. That doesn't mean that you, uh, you just ignore all the, the earthly details along the way. All right. Well, that's where we'll be. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Father, for uh, all that you have designed us for. I pray that we understand these verses and as we encounter them, Father, we can file them away. I do pray for this long-term project that uh, eventually this will take shape in terms of a, of a paper or a presentation perhaps that uh, Schaefer or some other place would benefit by. But Father, uh, 
I think it's just an undeveloped realm of doctrine, and, and I thank you for opening my eyes to see it for what it is. Thank you for being faithful, Father. We thank you and we praise you in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.